Would all of God's sheep turn to Psalm 23? It takes about 45 seconds to read this psalm. It takes a lifetime to experience it. I've gone through it many times, and this is the second study in this psalm alone, and there's depth here. It's a famous psalm, as we mentioned last week. Even heathens know it, and yet it should be a psalm that comforts our hearts. Today, we want to look at a couple of verses, verse 3 and 4, that speak about guidance, something everybody is interested in. Yesterday afternoon before our evening service, I performed a wedding. It was a privilege for me to perform this wedding because I knew this particular girl who was getting married. I knew her since she was 15 and watched her make some very important choices in life. Always wondering which choice will it be? Which decision will she take? And always was the idea of what does the Lord want for my life? And to see how God has given her guidance and protected her choices and brought her to that moment was really thrilling. Now, I can't say that for a guy by the name of Fred. I have this story in front of me. He inherited $10 million. But there were some catches. He had to make some choices, and he made the wrong ones. The will provided that he had to accept the $10 million either in Brazil or in Chile. Well, he chose Brazil. Unfortunately, it turned out that in Chile, he would have received his inheritance in land on which uranium, gold, and silver had just been discovered. Once in Brazil, he had to choose between receiving his inheritance in coffee or nuts. Well, he chose the nuts. Nuts too bad because the bottom fell out of the nut market, but coffee went up to $5.30 a pound wholesale and roasted And poor Fred lost everything he had to his name. He went out and sold his gold watch for money. He did it so that he could get enough money to fly home. It seems that he had enough money to buy a ticket, either to New York or Boston, but he chose Boston. When the plane for New York taxied up, he noticed it was a brand-new Super 747 jet with red carpets and chic people and wine-popping hostesses. The plane for Boston arrived... It was a 1928 Ford trimotor with a swayback. It took a full day to get off the ground. It was filled with crying children and tethered goats. Well, over the Andes, one of the engines fell off. And our man Fred made his way up to the cockpit and captain and said, Look, I'm a jinx on this plane. Let me out if you want to save your lives. Give me a parachute. The pilot agreed but said, On this plane, anybody who bails out must wear two chutes. So Fred jumped out of the plane, and as he fell dizzily through the air, trying to make up his mind which ripcord to pull, finally he chose the one on the left. It was rusty, and the wire pulled loose. So he then pulled the other handle. The parachute opened, but the shroud lines snapped. In desperation, the poor fellow cried out, St. Francis, save me! A great hand from heaven reached down and seized the poor fellow by the wrist, let him dangle in midair. And a gentle but inquisitive voice asked, St. Francis Xavier or St. Francis of Assisi? (laughs) Well, people like sheep need guidance. Though we have the freedom to make all kinds of choices, 
We want help in making the choices so that they're the right ones when we make them. We don't want to make the wrong ones. We want guidance in life. Perhaps that is why our society is so obsessed with horoscopes and fortunes and profits. Perhaps that's why 32 million Americans take astrology seriously. Because they want guidance. They want to know which is the best way to go. When I was in high school, I was very, very vulnerable and I wanted guidance. And I didn't know which way to turn for guidance. And I turned to the wrong way. And while I was in Mazatlan, Mexico, I got involved in spirit writing, asking spirits to take control of me and tell me who I am, where I came from in my past lives, and where I was going, what is the future, so I make the right choice. With every message they gave, I was filled with fear, not hope. Well, God, as a shepherd, speaks to this deep craving for guidance in Psalm 23. He speaks about Him being the shepherd, he loves to guide sheep. That's his business. And so the metaphor is chosen. God is the shepherd, we are a sheep. And we look today at verses 3 and 4. Speaks to this need. Let's begin at verse 1 for the sake of getting it all in context. And then we'll move through it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice some of these ideas. He makes me, verse 2. He leads me, same verse. Verse 3, same idea. He leads me. Though I walk, his rod and staff, the whole thing is bathed in God's guidance of his sheep. It's the language of guidance. And as we go through these two verses, we're going to look at five things that speak of the way God guides us. And I want to draw your attention to the first one, the personal pronoun he, which speaks to the point that God's guidance is personal. He makes me. He leads me. You know, if there's one thing that ought to set your mind at ease when you want to know the will of God, it's that you have a personal guide. I've discovered the Bible doesn't talk much about guidance. But it talks an awful lot about the guide. You see, here we are looking for direction. As if we want some little method or program. The Bible tells us you have the director living in you. Not just guidance, you have a guide. In other words, guidance isn't functional, it's relational. You say, well, that's just a play on words. No, it's not. What if you were in a big city you'd never been in? Would you rather have a detailed set of written instructions on how to get from A to B? Or would you love to have somebody say, I'm going there, I'll take you myself? If you're a new student on campus, you've just been through the dizzying registration process, you want to navigate your own way around campus? Or would you like somebody who's a seasoned student say, I know the halls, I know the classes, I know the walkways, let me take you there. When we take groups to Israel, we get a tour guide, a personal guide. We don't say, now would you turn in the back of your Bibles to the maps and just go wherever you'd like. We get somebody who's a local. He lives there. He does it all the time. Every week he takes a new group to different places. And so the guide versus the guidance. And that's exactly what Jesus promised. He didn't say, I'm going to 
you know, give you a set of A, B, C, and D. And if you do those things, you'll discover the will of God. This is what he promised, John 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. What a deal. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means that rather than following a rigid set of guidelines or instructions or steps to know the will of God, rather than saying, okay, I'm going to open my Bible this morning and find a verse that will guide me for the day, boom, and hope that's it. That's dangerous, you know. You could open up and find, and Judas hung himself. Oops. More than that, you have a creative guide who can get you from one point to the next point. Be careful that you don't read into everything some mystical message from God. Just because you run out of gas doesn't mean God wants you to sell the car. I'm often asked, well, then how does God guide? Does He do it through God speaking to my heart? Does He do it through Scripture? Does He do it through the counsel of godly people? Yes, all of the above. He has more even than that ways to get His will across. Relax, you're a sheep. And being sheep, He's the shepherd, He'll guide you. So his guidance is personal, and that's really the first thing to note here. Secondly, his guidance is purposeful. For David says, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Now, shepherds know that sheep require leading. They are not good navigators on their own. They're not like homing pigeons or dogs that hunt and smell out something. Let them go, and they're lost, usually. They wander, or they huddle together and don't do anything. That's why they need somebody to lead them. Sheep are so scared, they will often huddle in a group and just stay there. A couple years ago when we were in Israel, some of you were on the trip. We pulled up to the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem, got out, and there's a well there. And often women and shepherds will bring their sheep to the place to get water. Well, sure enough, there's a shepherd and there was sheep. Shepherd was there. The sheep were all huddled together, each head of the sheep buried in the wool of another, just scared. The shepherd had to step in and break them up. And lead them down the path. Because they wouldn't do it on their own. They wanted just to be where everybody else was. It's like the guy I found out about in Utah. He has a business. He wasn't getting much business in his store, so he bought a bunch of used cars and parked them out front. People drove by and thought, what's going on in that store? And his business went up dramatically because he discovered a truth about human nature. We are conditioned to conform. We somehow feel it's right if everybody else is doing it. Sheep are just like that. And so they require guidance. They don't find their own way. Now notice in this little verse that it's not one path but many. It's plural. He leads me in paths of righteousness. There isn't just one path that God will put you on in life but different ones. Now, if you were ever to go where sheep are grazing, you'll discover there's hundreds of pathways. If you go to Israel and you look up the hillsides, you see a network of hundreds of little trails. And the shepherd will work his flock up and down hillsides. Because if you leave sheep to themselves, you know what they'll do? They'll just blindly follow each other on the same path till the path becomes a rut. And it will ruin the land and it will ruin the sheep. 
It will ruin the land because it becomes overgrazed. It tends to erode more quickly. It will ruin the sheep because traveling on the same path, sheep pollute their own ground and it's infested with disease and parasites. So a good shepherd will change the path on the sheep. Add variety. Now, in life, have you discovered that ruts are pretty easy to get into and very hard to get out of? And have you also discovered how much we love ruts? We love them. They're comfortable. We're used to it. Give me my rut. Don't change things on me. I like it here. I've worked hard to get my rut just the way I like it. Well, don't be too surprised if the God that you serve, the God of freshness and variety, changes scenery on you. Changes the status quo. Shakes things up in your life a little bit. You don't like it, but He knows it's good for you. He didn't want you to overgraze the land. He changes the scenery on you. The only difference between a rut and a grave is the depth. So God will give you some variety. I found the God of the Bible is so filled with variety. For instance, in the Old Testament, it speaks of a new song, a new heart, a new spirit. God says, I will do a new thing in the hearts of my people. In the New Testament, it speaks of a new birth, being a new creation in Christ, a new commandment I give to you. The new man is spoken about, a new heavens and a new earth. So don't be too surprised if your shepherd puts you on a new path. Example. In the early church in Jerusalem, Jesus gave them a commission. He said, all right, you begin here in Jerusalem, and then you move out to Judea with the gospel, and then Samaria. Don't just stay here. Move out and spread the gospel. Well, God started pouring out His Spirit on the early church in Jerusalem, and if there was one cool place to be in the early church, it was in Jerusalem. Miracles were happening. Thousands of people were coming to Christ. It was always exciting. And so, some of them got a little bit lazy. Ruts can do that, you know. They, why leave Jerusalem? I love it. So, God creatively changes their path. How does He do it? Listen to Acts 8. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. You say, well, that's not very kind of God to do that. Sure it is. A revival breaks out in Judea and Samaria. They go to Antioch and missionaries are sent from those places and the gospel is spread. It was Bruce Barton who said, when you're through with changing, you're through. So you've got a good shepherd who gives variety in life. And sometimes, whether we like it or not, he'll change the path on us. Notice also that it's not paths of easiness, but it says paths of righteousness. Don't think that God's will is always the place of flow and ease and comfort and, oh, this has got to be God's will. It's just going so easily. They're paths of righteousness. Now think about your own life's paths. Think about the choices that you've made to walk down certain paths and do certain things. Does uh, Does righteousness mark your path? When you make choices, does righteousness top the list of priorities when you make those choices? You decide to date somebody or marry somebody. What issues are at stake for you? It shouldn't be just, is it passionate, but is it righteous? When you decide on jobs, 
It shouldn't be, is it lucrative, but is it righteous? Is this what God wants for my life? Now let me go a step further. Any path that you're walking on that is not a righteous path, it's not because your shepherd led you there. You wandered there all on your own. God leads you in paths of righteousness, holiness, things that will make you more like Him. And so God has a purpose in leading you out of your rut to put you on a path of righteousness. Now once you're on that path of righteousness, frequent that path. Let God do the changing. I heard about a story of when the gospel first came to a part of Africa, and it got into an African village where revival broke out, and almost without exception, all of the elders of that village and that tribe came to know Jesus Christ. Well, the missionary told them that every day they should have time carved out early in the morning to meet with God. They would have their quiet time, we call it. Read the Bible, meditate on a verse, pray. Every morning at sunrise, these men got up, left their huts, and walked out to a little portion of the jungle that they set aside, and they prayed. And they'd come back. Well, after a few days, a path was worn from the hut to that place in the jungle. And it became sort of their own private path. They'd get up, walk on it, have their quiet time, come back. But you could also tell when they were slacking off. Because when you don't frequent the right path, it starts growing again with weeds. And so... Sometimes another brother would rebuke his friend in a gentle way by saying, grass is growing in your path, brother. In other words, you haven't been spending much time with God, have you? You need to frequent the righteous paths as often as you can. Third, we notice here that his guidance is particular. It says that he leads me in path of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, I have been intrigued in reading the Bible just how often that phrase pops up. I've discovered that God in his book writes lots of stuff about his name. Twenty-nine different times the phrase for his name's sake is mentioned. Hundreds of different times the concept is mentioned. Even in Psalms, Psalm 25, David says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Psalm 79 Deliver us, provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. Psalm 106, he saved Israel from Egypt for his name's sake. Psalm 109, you, O God, the Lord, deal well with me for your name's sake. Psalm 48, for my name's sake, God says, I will defer my anger so that I do not cut you off. So there's always this recurrent, for my name's sake. Then we get to the New Testament And we remember how Jesus taught the disciples to pray. He said, when you do it, do it like this. Say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's top of the list. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Before you ask for anything, hallowed be thy name. Now, what does that mean? For thy name's sake, hallowed be thy name. The name stands for reputation, character, honor. Somebody will say, he made a name for himself. It means he has developed a reputation by what he's done, famous or infamous. He's made a name for himself. So that sometimes when you see a name, you think of what's behind the name. For instance, when you see the name Rolls-Royce stamped on a car or an engine, you think cheap junk. Usually you think detail, craftsmanship, 
and big bucks. That's what the name represents. It stands for a certain kind of reputation behind the name. Well, you've been stamped by the name of God. He has stamped you with the name of His Son, Christ. You are stamped. Christians. And you tell people, I'm a Christian. And people get God's reputation based on your action. People make up their minds about God by looking at His kids. God is invisible. We are visible. We represent Him. And since His name is stamped on our lives, it should reflect Him. What all this means here is that when God gives you guidance... He guides you with His reputation in mind. His reputation. For your name's sake. Let me dispel a common myth. God does not exist to serve you. God does not exist to make you happy. You have to reverse it to get the right truth. You exist for God. Revelation chapter 4, we read, You are worthy, O Lord God, to receive glory, honor, and power. You created everything, and it's for your pleasure they exist and were created. Now, that is exactly contrary to all the modern slogans like, Love yourself, be true to yourself, be your own best friend. And it seems that we have conditioned ourselves in our culture to measure everything on a sliding scale of personal happiness, including God. How happy does it make me? But we exist to serve and worship God. Which means, when we ask God to guide us, one of the goals we should have in mind is, how will this bring you glory? Will my action exalt your name, give honor to your reputation? Does it please God? Remember, Jesus said, I always do those things that please Him. Wouldn't you love to be able to say that? I always do those things that please Him. Let me add to that and say that when you please God and make that your goal, it's a better way to live. It's an easier way to live. It's a lot harder to try to please people. People are fickle. And if you please one person, you won't please another person. It is a burden no man can bear. So... Ferret out everything else and keep as your goal, how does this please my God? You'll be a lot happier. I heard about a man, an old man, who was walking through a village, several of them actually, with a donkey and a young boy. He walks through the first village holding donkey, rope around the donkey in hand. Behind him walked the young boy. As he walked through the village, the villagers started saying, what a fool the old man is. He should at least ride the donkey and take advantage of it. So, to please them, he gets on the donkey and goes to the village. Well, he gets to the second village, and the villagers say, how cruel that old man is to make the young kid walk while he's riding. So, to please them, he gets off the donkey, and he puts the kid on, and they go to the next village. And in the next village, they say, that little boy is so lazy, he should be walking, let the old man ride. Or at least they should ride it together. So, to please them, they both got on the donkey, and walk to the next village. And you can guess what would happen. In the final village, people complained that they were being cruel to the donkey. And I think the last scene was the old man walking down the street carrying the donkey. (laughs) You can't please everyone. And if you try to, you'll carry a load that you were never meant to, to carry. 
So God's guidance, it's personal, it's purposeful, it is particular for His namesake. Fourth, His guidance is preserving. Verse 4 is, is very significant. There's a lot in it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now there's a lot in that. In fact, when it comes to the hard times of life, and God's guiding you through them, this verse will speak to you. There's a few things to notice. First of all, you're going to walk through valleys. It's not always still waters, green pastures. Sometimes it's valleys. And this is where we scream. This is where we put our fist up and go, God, how could you? You're a God of love. Well, how come you're doubting? Because I'm going through a valley. Yeah, I'm leading you in that valley. This is my will for your life. We don't like that, do we? We love mountaintop experiences. And I think our prayer, if we were honest, would often be, Oh, God, just airlift me from mountaintop to mountaintop. And I will claim it in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. You know, people who live only on mountaintops are very shallow people. Valleys deepen character. And in the Middle East, oftentimes, shepherds will purposely put their sheep down in ravines. You know why? Because it gets hot. And when it gets hot, the place of shadows is the place of reprieve from the heat. Now, sheep are interesting. Not only are they scared, timid little creatures, they hate darkness, they don't like shadows because they don't see all that well. So when you limit their vision and put them in a shadow, they don't like it. But the shepherd in his love will move them further down the ravine. And the sheep, if he could talk with you, why is he doing this? I thought my shepherd was a shepherd of love. Only to discover at the bottom of many of those Middle Eastern ravines are what Arabs call wadis or streams. It's where the springs are or the rain runoff is. And sometimes the greenest, calmest, most refreshing place is in the deepest valley. You know, I've discovered in life, Christians who suffer in dark valleys are often those with rich character. They discover something. They're going into the valley. I hate this. And they get there and they'll say, I've experienced the presence and fellowship with God in this place like nowhere else. There's this unique stillness and time of refreshment in this valley. And you know what? There are some lessons that you can only learn in valleys. There's some lessons you cannot learn on mountaintops. That's why people who never have bad things happen are often so shallow. Because there's lessons you learn only in depth. One of them is compassion. People who never suffer, don't let them counsel suffering people. People who've been in the valley, let them handle those who are walking through the valleys. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1. God comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Something else about these valleys, not only will you walk through them, sometimes they'll be very, very dark. Darker than others. David calls it, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't necessarily mean facing physical death as it does gloominess. It's that you get so far into the ravine, it it seems like it's just encased in darkness. I can't see the light. Is there any way out? It's a valley of the shadow of death. And sometimes in life, 
will all face situations that could be described as the valley of the shadow of death. This is worse than the last trial. This is really, really hard. This is really deep. You'll walk through some of those. But even when you come to that valley, and even if it does mean the end of your own life, you're facing your own death, you'll walk through the valley. You won't stay in it. Though I walk through the valley, there's a moment of darkness, we awaken the light. And really that's what death is. Death is like taking a walk in a valley. You're in it, and as soon as you're in it, you go back up. You're back in the light, on the mountain, permanently. Charles Spurgeon said, Death is not the house, but the porch. It's not the goal, but the passage to the goal. A third thing about this verse, you can go through those valleys without fear. Now, it's not always typifying everyone, but you can do it. Though I walk through the valley, I shall fear no evil, he says. Why? Because it's the valley of the shadow of death, not the valley of death. Shadows don't hurt you. It's just a shadow. Shadow of a dog can't bite you. Shadow of a sword can't hurt you. And a shadow of death can't destroy you. The substance of death itself has been taken away. There's no fear in it. It's just a shadow. And there's a key to getting through that valley. Look at David says, though I walk through it. Notice how he crafts that phrase. He doesn't say, yea, though I crawl. Yea, though I curl up and die in the valley. But I walk through it. And a key factor in times of dark, shadowy experiences, don't stop. Just keep walking step at a time, trusting God. But it's dark. Just keep going. At the uh, end of, an, of a runway at an airport in a city is a road. And there's a sign on the road that says, Keep moving. If you stop, you're in danger, and you're a danger to others who are flying. And when you're in the valley, Christian, just keep walking. Fourthly, you can experience his presence in this valley. David says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for or because, here's the the real secret here, you are with me. Can you think of anything worse than going through a time that's very, very difficult all alone? That's very tough. There's nothing more reassuring to know you're not alone. When my son was just a toddler, he used to have all, he had an episode of many nightmares, several nights in a row and months of nightmares. And when he would wake up from the nightmare, he'd find himself in a dark room in his crib, uh, all alone, and so he'd cry out louder. He felt abandoned. And I'd hear him down the hall, hold you. I knew what that meant. It meant get in the room and hold me so I can hold you. Because the place of comfort is when he was holding mom or dad. Just to know we were there and we'd pick him up, rock him to sleep, he'd be out like a light. We were there. What's there to fear? Dad, mom, they're with me. Nothing is more reassuring to sheep than knowing the shepherd's there. Philip Keller, who wrote that book that I mentioned last week, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, talks about his experience. He says, In the course of time, I came to realize nothing so quieted and reassured the sheep as to see me in the field. The presence of their master and owner and protector put them at ease as nothing else could do. And this applied day and night. There was one summer when sheep rustling was so common 
in our district. And night after night, the dog and I were out under the stars, keeping watch over the flock by night, ready to defend the raids or from the raids of any of these rustlers. The news of my diligence spread among the grapevine and our backcountry roads, and the rustlers quickly decided to leave us alone and try their tactics elsewhere. Awesome to have that kind of a shepherd. He's there. I see him. There he is. Okay, this brings up an issue. What about the times you don't see him? What about going through the valley you don't experience him? How many times have you said or thought, Where's God? I used to feel him, but I don't feel him now. Now, does that mean he's not there because you don't feel him or see some manifestation of his presence? You'd be surprised how many Christians believe that theology. God must be real because I feel him. God must not be real because I don't. What if you walk out in the sun with that thinking and you walk outside, but it's overcast? Would you say, the sun does not exist? Somebody would say, why, why would you say that? Well, I don't see it. I don't feel its warmth. Okay, try going out in the sun when it's overcast without sunscreen. You get a worse sunburn than when there is not an overcast sky because the long wavelength radiation is attenuated by the clouds. The short wavelength goes through and you get it all. It seems like the sun is more prevalent. At least you feel it later. And sometimes in darkness, God is even more present. The issue isn't, I feel him, I don't feel him, I see him, I don't see him. We live by faith, not by sight. God is there because he promised to be there. I'm with you always, he said. I'll never leave you or forsake you. One of the great missionaries to Africa, most all of us have heard of David Livingston. He left his mark in Africa and in England, the country that sent him to Africa. He spent his life there, but at one point, it was 1896, he was called back to Glasgow, Scotland, to receive an honorary award at a banquet. They wanted to confer upon him doctor of whatever. So he comes to this award banquet, and everybody is clapping for the various people they award. And when they call David Livingston's name, and he stands up, there was this respectful hush, silence that fell over the crowd. Especially when they looked at him, he was gaunt and haggard. The years in Africa wore on him. He looked really aged. His left arm had been attacked, bitten by a lion. It was crushed and it was just hanging limp without feeling at his side. Got up, thanked people for the award and said, I want you to know I'm going right back to Africa. And their jaws sort of dropped looking at this man. And he turned with a smile and he said, Would you like me to tell you? why I'm going back, and what has kept me strong all these years in a hostile country where I've been attacked and people don't speak my language and I've been misunderstood. I'll tell you, it's one promise, he said. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he said, On these words, I have staked everything. And he has never failed me. God is with me. I choose to believe in the presence of God in the darkest valleys. So the guidance of God is preserving. Fifthly and finally, God's guidance is protective. And that's borne out by that last little phrase, your rod and your staff comfort me. Shepherds have special equipment. They have a rod and a staff. Now, when you picture a shepherd, most of you picture a guy with a headdress and a staff, a crook. He holds this thing up. He's the shepherd. 
But he has another piece of equipment that's a comfort to the sheep. It's called the rod. It hangs from his belt. It's about that big. It's a club. Sometimes it has nails in it. I mean, it would hurt. You know what the shepherd does with it? Beats off wolves. Wolves come to attack. That shepherd's got the rod. Come on, wolf. Now, that would be a comfort to the sheep, don't you think? My shepherd's there to protect me. He's got a rod. Now, as Christians, the Bible says, Satan is our adversary, and he walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so he sees you, and he goes, I'm going to get that person. Here comes Jesus with the rod. Oh, yeah? Your rod comforts me. Now, there are occasions when shepherds would use a portion of the rod to get their sheep in line, but not usually. It's usually reserved as a defense against wolves. But there's another tool. It's the staff. The staff is used to guide the sheep. So the rod is used to defend the sheep. Staff is used to direct the sheep. The rod is used to protect the sheep from wolves. The crook or the staff is used to protect the sheep from themselves because they wander or they huddle up. And so the shepherd moves in and nudges them with the staff or puts it around the neck and not hard but gently pulls with just enough pressure that older sheep will respond to it because they're not all that strong-willed. They're just kind of, you know, sheep. And usually pressure will do it. But the very young sheep being so weak, the shepherd will use the staff sort of as a scoop and and, and strong enough to bear up a baby sheep at the edge of that crook and he brings it to his bosom and carries it. I think there's some insight right there into why God chooses such weak, simple people. I've heard this before. Oh, Christians, they're so weak. The sooner you admit that, the better. No, I'm not. I'm strong. I'm self-sufficient. Just admit, I need a shepherd. I'll let him guide me. Now, I know people who say, I don't want anybody. I can make up my own mind. Oh, you're, you're a tough one, huh? It was Hudson Taylor, another missionary, who noted, God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. They admit it. I'm a sheep. Guide me, lead me, direct me. You know the best paths. Change them if you want but just be my shepherd. Now, if we sum all this up then about God's guidance system, it's this. He will personally see to it that you are led. He delights to be your guide. Second, he'll lead you on a variety of paths to keep you out of ruts. So be careful in that comfortable little rut. He just might change scenery. Third, you'll be able to tell if the path you're on is his path or not, if it's a righteous path. Not just an easy path. Is it a righteous path? Fourth, he will guide you to the place that gives him the most glory for his name's sake. Also, he will lead you into deep valleys. And though you may not like them, you might find it's the most refreshing place you've been in a long time as God manifests his presence to you. And finally, he will guide you by internal pressure and external protection. Folks, that is why your story would end much differently than Fred, who inherited 10 million bucks. He made lots of choices, but he didn't have your shepherd. You've got a good shepherd, and your story would end differently. And Father, we commit our lives to you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that 
we would relinquish our control, especially those of us who just are control freaks. We want to be in charge of every little thing in our lives. No wonder you allow certain things beyond our control just to show us we're not in control. Lord, I pray that we would be responsible but trust you as the shepherd. You will change paths. You will guide us with your staff. You will lead us into valleys, sometimes dark, sometimes deep. Sometimes we will cry out and beg that you don't. And sometimes in those dark valleys we'll find you more present than ever before. We pray, Lord, that we would just learn as sheep to trust the shepherd. After all, we're just sheep and you're the shepherd. You know much more. Father, I pray for those who are out there trying to navigate themselves and they are wandering, they're lost. Or they're huddled together trying to be like everybody else following the same trends, the same patterns of people around them, and they need a shepherd to guide them. Have compassion, Lord, as they would surrender their lives to you this morning. Guide them. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name.